Good morning and welcome to The Isle of Faces. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls and to part 13 of A Storm of Swords. As you know, this is the companion podcast, the history of Westeros' Valaridis project, and we are streaking through the latter half of A Storm of Swords. We have another five chapters for you today, all focused on yet another huge A Song of Ice and Fire event, just like a couple of weeks ago, just like last week, just like every week, it seems, with this second half of the book. Like I say, good morning. I am Sir Buckley, your head green person here on the aisle, and I'm saying hello to you from an oddly cloudy, very, very windy England. Hmm, which is strange because it's been scorching lately all this week. The sun has been out, the summer months are here to cheer us all up, and as you know, I'm solar powered, so you can expect it even more from me today. As always, I hope you're all keeping safe and smart during these trying times. I hope this simple podcast can relieve some of the boredom or restlessness you might be feeling at this moment. Some of you have even been kind enough to mention the Isle of Faces helping you through these trying times, and can there really be any higher compliment? I think not. Please do reach out day or night with a tweet or an email. I'm always up, or whatever, if you feel you need to, especially if you're one of our beloved key workers down on the front lines, because we would love to show you our appreciation. It's going to be another big episode, I think, today, but before we get to that, two quick points on the notice board. Firstly, worry not, Sporkle Spectacular is not going anywhere. I know we missed this Thursday, but we're just waiting on some guest schedules to line up because obviously these quizzes are a lot more fun with guests, we want to keep them coming, and we do have a few doozies lined up that you'll be very excited to listen to. So we're just waiting for that, and there's no rush with these. We're not keeping to a, a re-reader schedule this time, we can have them whenever we like. So you can expect the next Sporkle Spectacular, which will be Clash of Kings closing sentences, yes, those dastardly closing sentences again, Maybe either this weekend or next Thursday in its regular spot, or a bit earlier if you are one of our beloved patrons. Speaking of said beloved patrons, let me say hello, of course, and thank you, as always, to all of our patrons, and especially to Lady Raj, our mistress of horse, you can now find her on Twitter, by the way, and Archmaester June, the healer of lesser poxes, you are always so very, very appreciated. But it's not just a hello and a thank you for patrons this time, there's also news on that front. I've been speaking lately about some different types of podcasts, different episodes coming your way and this is first up because we have a new patron episode coming to our shores and it's definitely a bit different. You might remember, because I tend to go on about it so much, that back in the winter I self-published a book named The Great Castles of Westeros, an unofficial guide. And now that that book is a little older, I figured we should put it to use here on the aisle. So, the next Isle of Faces patron-only episode will be myself reading out a chapter from the book, a whole chapter, and it's going to be a chapter chosen by our very own patrons. Now, you know me, I'm not the smoothest when it comes to talking about my own work, but hopefully people will like hearing the chapter read by the guy who wrote it. That might be cool for you. And not only that, but I'll be including some extras I couldn't fit in or have learned since, some more rethinking I've done, also some meta stuff on how that chapter was formed and the writing process that went into it so that might be of interest to you and i'll definitely be opening up the old mailbag for any questions on that particular chosen chapter once we find out because like i say patrons will be choosing which chapter slash castle they want to hear about the poll is already live up on our patron page we've got some votes in so now it's just a matter of waiting to see who the winner is very exciting so if you would like to get involved not just with the voting but also actually hearing the episode itself or any of the other stuff we've got on our Patreon, please just head on over to Patreon slash Isle of Faces. You can see what we're all about there if it's of any interest to you. And it's not just this, but other new stuff is heading that way. So exciting times aboard the R. And of course, you can find a much larger post and more information about this specific episode. So my thanks to all of you for taking a look. 
Now, back to today already, let's get to it. We're back to five chapters as usual, and it's quite the different situation to last week's incredible run of separate chapters and different storylines. This week, for the first time ever, as far as I remember, we are staying in one place for the entire episode. This is a King's Landing only episode, because today, oh so quickly after our last one, we have another wedding. This is another of those big, big staple events of the entire series. When you say Storm of Swords, the first things people think of are the Red Wedding what happens later on in King's Landing, and this, the Purple Wedding. We say goodbye to our original enemy in Joffrey, someone for whom the focus was so intense for those first three books, especially Game of Thrones when he was the focus of Eddard's investigation. He's the person who ordered the death of Eddard Stark, the whole, the, the thing that the series is known for originally, the big selling point. And we'll also get today the beginning of Tyrion's descent and him losing everything, as well as Sansa finally escaping her captors, only to run into someone much, much worse, yes that guy returns, we'll get to him later. And to top that off, we've got Jamie finally returning to his city and his lover and all that has changed since. So we have one hell of an episode to go through. Our chapters today are Tyrion 7, Sansa 4, Tyrion 8, Sansa 5 and Jamie 7. So already you'll notice very similar formatting to the Red Wedding in the case of two BOVs following one another. And we've actually seen this with Tyrion and Sansa before during the Blackwater, although we did have Davos back then to mix it up a bit. We've also got some fairly short chapters as we did before of the Red Wedding, but that's more than enough to be getting on with. So let's get started, shall we, with Tyrion 7. And we're starting actually with one of the shortest chapters. It might well be Tyrion's shortest ever chapter. I'd have to check, but definitely feels that way. It's lightning quick, and really, it's just focusing on a single scene with him and Shay. Now, if you had asked me to pick a least favourite chapter of this book prior to the reread, I might well have chosen this one. In general, I had never been a big fan of the Tyrion Shay dynamic in the past, as it always seemed quite repetitive in my memory. In fairness, upon this reread, there aren't nearly as many meetups between the two as I remember, and it's probably a bigger storyline clash than it is Storm, so that's just a mistake in my memory there. And I'm also a lot more into examining their relationship than I have been on past reads. I'm finding it a lot more interesting this time round, so that's another benefit of doing these rereads is finding different aspects and storylines to focus on. Still, I'm not entirely high on this chapter as there isn't all that much plot progression and it's more a setting of the table for what's coming and precisely what it is Tyrion is about to lose. I think it's fair to say George could have got away with taking this out, but it is here and there is important stuff in there because this will be Tyrion's final private interaction with Shay until... Well, you know what happens later, and his entire psyche crumbles into dance Tyrion, so it is worth having a look at. It's fairly monumental that this is the last we see of Shay and Tyrion, because they are, when you think about it, the relationship we are most involved with in all of Song of Ice and Fire, the one we're present for the most. The only challenger in my mind would be Jon and Egret, but that is much shorter and seemed even more doomed to fail than Tyrion and Shay, somehow. Remember, we've been them since they met. They've stretched from the Battle of the Green Fork all the way to the end of Storm of Swords, which is longer than a good many entire character arcs, and we've certainly been present for more than a few intimate moments between the two. Even with all the married couples we see, most of them are separated by war or are too small for I to count. You could maybe say Jamie and Cersei, but again, they are apart for a long, long time and will part again after their reunion, so I don't think that counts as much, even if they're, even if you get two important characters there instead of just one in Tyrion. But with Tyrion and Shay, we are allowed a window into exactly what this relationship means to Tyrion, and hence, to me, it retains its number one spot in a Song of Ice and Fire relationships, which is the exact trap Tyrion falls into, because the fact is, this isn't a relationship at all, it's a business transaction that Tyrion has mentally morphed into what he thinks is a relationship. We've talked about this problem through all of the Storm and Clash as well, so we don't really need to go over it too much. It's clear what that self-belief slash delusion has done to Tyrion, 
and why he's needed this crutch to lean on. It makes sense because of the huge emotional damage done to him with the whole Taisha thing that we don't want to talk about, and it makes sense that Tyrion actually needs this connection more after his marriage to Sansa, not less. Waking up in a bed alone was one thing, waking up next to a young girl who is forever close to you and will hate you forever no matter what you do, yes it does make you that keener to see a friendly face. On that subject, let's get started with our first quote of the day. It was only later, with a heavy oaken door between them, that he heard her sobbing. Tyrion had considered going to her then, to offer what comfort he could. No, he had to remind himself. She will not look for solace from a Lannister. So at least Tyrion really has learned something since their wedding. He can be the nicest man in the world, but his surname will always keep him distant from a woman he constantly has to be close to. That knowledge doesn't make it any easier for him, it isn't any fairer on a skin-deep level, although if we dig any further, Tyrion has done a lot to indirectly support Sansa's enemies, so it's all fair enough. But it's hard to focus sympathy on Tyrion in this first paragraph, when we learn Sansa has received news of Catelyn and Rob. Not only do we have a second confirmation of the phrase being extra evil with the bodies, we have to deal with our own empathy towards Sansa's world somehow becoming worse than it already was. She's so used to being a prisoner at this point that she has semi-made it her own, focusing on her potential escape not far down the line. But she heard this news on her own, had to deal with it on her own. It came completely out of the blue, remember? It wasn't like Rob lost a big battle or everyone agreed he'd be done in a few months. Now the lone hope of being reunited with her family has all gone, snuffed out in an instant, so it's no wonder she didn't want to share her tears with Tyrion. Winter is coming, was the stark words, and truly it had come for them with a vengeance, but it is high summer for House Lannister, so why am I so bloody cold? Many have noted before that Tyrion has had a certain affinity for House Stark throughout his story, and it's going to come up again later today as well. He makes friends with Jon Snow, he has a certain spot of affection for Bran, he came to a semi-mutual respect relationship with Catelyn, in some ways at least, he did save her life, don't forget, and obviously cares for Sansa even if he can't display it correctly. Though he had his moments against Rob politically, it's not like Tyrion was ever desperate to destroy him. His handship was always focused on repelling Stannis. And we can see here he's obviously taking no great joy in the victory over the Starks. And there's several reasons for that. Against him is what we unfortunately learnt last time. He's annoyed he wasn't involved with the scheme. But second is that he knows this was an evil act and sympathises with his wife. And third is his complete disillusionment with Joffrey and unwillingness to really help him out at all anymore. I like to think this is the last gasp of Tyrion being if not pro-Stark, then at least having a friendly respect for them. I still love his description and memories of Winterfell that really gets to me. It's the last tease before the Purple Wedding and Tyrion's quick descent into Dance Tyrion, like we said, where he will obviously not be thinking any kind thoughts about Sansa or House Stark. It's another alas alarm situation for what could have been, and like I say, this is going to come up a little bit again later, so just keep your ears out for that one. Here's another quick quote. Varys had suggested the woman to him. In former days, she had run Lord Renly's household in the city, which had given her a deal of practice at being blind, deaf, and mute. Now, that's a sneaky way of writing that sentence, George. The mention of Renly's name puts the focus on him, given that he doesn't come up that much anymore, and we didn't know him all that well to begin with, at least in King's Landing, so it engages our brain a bit more, when we should probably be looking more at the beginning of the sentence. Surely this is Varys planting a spy into Tyrion's ranks. Then again, who's to say he doesn't already have Shay on the payroll? Don't know. I guess the kitchens are maybe outside of Varys's cruel space tactics. Either way, it's the description of Brella being mute that makes me think she might be one of the rare grown-up little birds. Not physically, maybe, but still. As Tyrion creeps through the night and down through the castle, we find out everything is kind of going well for him, on the surface at least. He's moved back into some decent rooms. Everyone loves living above a kitchen, it's very cool. He's a bit further away from Cersei, and crucially, he's managed to sneak Shay into the household so she's so close they can have these late-night rendezvous. All things considered, that's a pretty good haul. Consider where he was at the beginning of the book and compare it to now. I think that's a forgotten part of Tyrion's storm arc. 
that even though he never matches his clear highs of clash, he had made some major steps up in terms of his situation. He's got an important job in the small council, a wife he can brag about if he's so inclined, his concubine is in the same building and is seemingly still secret, and he's got that distance from those he hates most. It's definitely forgotten and part of the tragedy of Tyrion that all this is snatched away from him by others pulling the strings in a couple of chapters' time. But that's all on the surface, because even with this advance in circumstances, Tyrion is not happy. As we've already discussed, he's not happy being hated in his own marriage, which is fair enough. And as he tells us with this quote, he's unhappy with just about everyone. My wife, my sister, my nephew, my father, the Tyrells, he had to move on to his other hand, Varys, Pycelle, Littlefinger, the Red Viper of Dawn, he'd come to his last finger, the face that stares back out of the water when I wash. Some of this jumps out as extraneous or inflated to me. Has Pycelle really given Tyrion any cause for concern of late? Has Littlefinger? He's not even there. Although, ironically, he's about to cause huge amounts of concern for Tyrion, but that's unknown. I'm not even really sure why he's concerned about the Tyrells and Martells, on the scale that pertains to him personally anyway. Yes, he can be concerned about their threat to his family's role as rulers, but it's not his job to babysit them. Concern about Cersei, Joffrey and Tywin is much more understandable and usual. He knows Cersei will not forget all that has transpired between them, and obviously Joffrey is still incredibly incensed about what went down at Tyrion's own wedding. And this all starts to make much more sense when it's slowly revealed that today is the day of Joffrey's wedding. So Tyrion will have to be in close proximity with Cersei and Joffrey, and is probably expecting some kind of backlash or mockery. But in general, Tyrion seems very dismissive of the good fortune that has come to him. We often talk about his sharp fall and all that the Purple Wedding will do to him, as well as the mind-shattering that comes with his final interactions with Tywin and Shay later, but I think perhaps the purpose of this chapter is to show that a lot of that melancholy and pure tiredness of all this political bullshit is already very present in Tyrion. And of course, his personal issues have gone nowhere. Remember the end of that quote, the face that stares back out of the water when I wash. He still laments his scars from the Blackwater, and I think this book has made it clear Tyrion is incredibly uncomfortable appearing in public now, even if he doesn't ever directly say it. And again, that is all fair enough, it makes perfect sense, but it links so strongly into his need for Shay. He hates his face, he hates his body, it's pure self-loathing. He needs Shay for a pick-me-up, even if he's still reminding himself now that she's only being paid to say such. But before we dig too deep into Tyrion Shay type territory, let's talk about Varys a little more. Here's a couple of quotes from him. That gives us a, a pretty decent insight into how he works. Here's the first. Your sister is of a more suspicious mind. If she should ask me what I know, you will tell her some clever lie. No, I will tell her that the girl is a common camp follower that you acquired before the battle on the Green Fork and brought to King's Landing against your father's express command. I will not lie to the Queen. And then the second one. The eunuch sighed. That cuts more deeply than a knife, my lord. I have served you loyally, but I must also serve your sister when I can. How long do you think she would let me live if I have no further use to her whatsoever? I have no fierce sellsword to protect me, no valiant brother to avenge me, only some little birds who whisper in my ear. With those whisperings, I must buy my life anew each day. Clearly, some of Tyrion's tension comes from him knowing he's really playing with fire still, and his safety net isn't as secure as he'd like it to be. He's been told time and time again what it'll mean if Tywin or Cersei discover Shay, yet he continues to put her in mortal danger, Again ironic, considering where her true mortal danger will actually come from. That, again, goes into his self-loathing and self-destruction. If anything ever did happen to Shay, it will be so close to his trauma of Tysha, it will utterly destroy him, to say nothing of poor Shay, of course. But he continues on and on and on, because he simply can't find the strength to stop. Essentially, he's an addict being made to feel good. Varys gives us a bit of rare insight into the logistics of how he has to constantly tap dance on multiple lines to keep everyone on side, even if that means having to give up something every now and then. 
It's also interesting to see his thinking on how he doesn't have the safety barriers that Tyrion does. It's almost a slight reframing of his famous question from Clash. He doesn't have the sword, the name or the money, so he's forced to continue playing the game. Unfortunately, it's bad timing for Tyrion to be thinking on this specific Varys conversation because it also comes off as a very business-like transaction. It's a reminder that as much as he and Varys have a loose friendship or something like it, the spider does have his own needs and goals in mind and they won't always line up with Tyrion's. All of that doubles down on the concern for Shay. He thought he could at least have Varys playing defence. Turns out no, and that self-destruction seems all the more likely. And I think this quote backs that up. The risk he was taking left him tight as a drumhead, and there was guilt as well. So, yeah, I think that confirms what we've just been saying. But the guilt he refers to here is about being unfaithful to Sansa, so I suppose that's just something else to pile on for him at the moment. Now let's get to this meeting between Shay and Tyrion. Here's another quote. Her dress was draped over a black tooth near as tall as she was, and she stood within the dragon's jaws, nude. Valerian, he thought. Or was it Vhagar? One dragon skull looked much like another. So this is weird because remember last episode we had Daenerys right at the end and she was thinking about the names of uh, dragons when referring to her different ships. So that's a nice little connection there in terms of the chapter sequencing that we all love so much. And I wonder if this chapter originally had a lot more on the dragons and George perhaps cut it short. It's been a long time since Tyrion had any of his I love dragons moments or memories. So this would have been an ideal opportunity, especially since he's about to head down the path that will eventually lead him to an actual dragon. Or, you know, fingers crossed, we're not quite there yet. That symbolism is still there, he still sees some dragons, but there could have been a lot more. And what about the end of the quote? One dragon skull looks much like another. Hmm, is this a subtle hint to the switch Varys was supposedly able to carry off between fake Aegon and a random child? I'll leave you to decide. Tyrion ends this very quick chapter cycling through his options for Shay's safety. Can he tell Sansa? No, that involves too much trust again. Can he send her to Chateas or marry her to Bronn? Both of those would probably work, but I think we all agree there is absolutely no way Tyrion would be able to exist knowing Bronn is having sex with Shay a couple of floors beneath him lying next to a cold and distant Sansa. Much the same for Shateas, no matter how highborn her patrons. So he settles for Sir Talard, and even that has an aura of self-loathing because he's so tied into Sir Talard being the good-looking one, about him being tall, and about him being what Tyrion is not. For all that, I do think he lands on Sir Talard because he knows Shay would be genuinely happy. There is a part of him that truly wants the best for her. It's just not a big enough part to outdo the selfishness and extreme needs we discussed earlier. And do we really think Tyrion would ever actually marry her to Sir Talard? I say, even if Joffrey is never killed, Tyrion and Shay would be doomed in one way or the other because of Tyrion's emotional problems and especially because he simply cannot properly categorise what their relationship actually is. We see this perfectly in the final private words between them. My giant of Lannister, I love you so. And I love you as well, sweetling. It's quite striking, so soon after we see the end of a true love relationship in John's last chapter. Tyrion hears her say the words and believes her. Maybe there's supposed to be an alas alarm from George here in terms of maybe Tyrion would have done the right thing and Shay would have lived a happy life if the purple wedding hadn't happened. But I say no. It is important that Tyrion finally has a sense of closure of moving on and trying to marry Shay to Sir Talard if you believe he was actually going to go through with it, which again, I do not. He's fooled one last time. And of course, that particular term of endearment from Shay, well, that is going to come back and haunt Tyrion sooner rather than later. In the absence of much plot development or anything new with Tyrion, it seems like an ideal time to examine what is and has been happening with Shay in this chapter. I feel like I recall many fans being angry with Shay for saying the words I love you outright to Tyrion, and that this is a sure sign of absolute betrayal and Shay should be counted among the villains of the series. I have to say, I don't understand this line of thinking at all. Shay is a sex worker. It is Tyrion's fault if he takes what she says at face value. 
even if he kind of doesn't and then kind of does every, and then kind of doesn't again every now and then. She is being paid to do these things and no, no one puts a knife to her throat and forces her to say I love you first, but clearly she is doing it as a part of what she is paid to do. There has to be an advancement in this girlfriend experience she essentially has with Tyrion and this is part of it. Rereaders are likely skipping ahead a bit when thinking about Shay in this chapter, already considering her ending up with Tywin or her lies during the trial. That's a different conversation we will come to, but let's focus on the present for now. Consider where Shay was in Clash. Set up in a manse with singers coming to play for her. It was the good life. Now she has to be a maid, and she likely prefers being a handmaid in the Sansa rather than Lollis, and it's still a lot better than her situation when she first met Tyrion in Game of Thrones, but still, she should not be blamed for wanting to better her lot in life. Society, as it is set up in Westeros, only allows so many avenues for women to do such, and saying I love you to Tyrion might just be one way to do that. You could easily see how she might be worried about her future income, given that Tyrion has just gotten married and is always muttering about how they can't do this anymore. When people talk about Shay and betrayal, they are a lot closer to the mark when it comes to the later trial and the lie she tells about Tyrion and Sansa plotting. I can see that argument, even if I still completely understand why Shay felt she had to do that and I still don't believe that paints her as a villain. I understand why seeing Shay with Tywin completely breaks Tyrion's psyche, but I say we point blame far more at Tywin than Shay for that. People need to try and look through her lenses and understand this world as it is set up for her. Her lone source of income, her one safety net in a world incredibly violent against sex workers, has just been sentenced to death. Her choices are staying loyal to a man she owes nothing to and cannot help, or trying to find a new avenue of payment and safety. If Cersei slash Tywin come offering a deal, what's a girl to do? And in all fairness, it really, really did look like Tyrion had killed Joffrey. All Shay knows is that he really hated his nephew and he could be angry and violent. Yes, it does involve embellishment and dead out lies in her, on her end. She might go over the line, but we don't know how much is her and how much is Cersei insisting on a certain script. But I'd like to know how many of us would act differently were we in the same boat. To paint Shay as a straight up villain is irresponsible in my eyes. Now to close out here, I do think George chooses to have a slow reveal that it's wedding day, specifically because of the Red Wedding being so close. I honestly didn't remember there being so few chapters between them. So to make it a big deal might send the wrong message. As it is, no first time reader is expecting the Purple Wedding as it ends up, but tension is raised because Tyrion is already worrying. We've still got leeches to worry about, and come on, how can you not have tension after the Red Wedding? So that's our first Tyrion of the day out of the way, but don't worry, we're not going far because we're only skipping just over the road to Sansa for Sansa 4. This is the first Sansa chapter in ages. It's actually in 31 chapters. Last time we were in her mind was for her own wedding, which, like we said, seems an age ago. She hasn't even made much of an appearance in Tyrion's chapters, to be honest. She's present for a brief meal at the beginning of Tyrion 6, but has only been included by quick snips of memory from Tyrion, so this is a pretty large departure for so central a character as Sansa. We've spoken already about King's Landing in general, having taken a backseat through much of this book to get ready for the grand ending, but that effect is doubled with Sansa. She's been absent for a long, long time. She had one chapter early on where she didn't even technically move, but we're going to get a quick two here before some very, very important ones in the Vale, as well as the honour of closing this book out with its final chapter, one of the most famous in A Song of Ice and Fire, what it reveals. Now, if you'd like to nerd out with me for just a second, I went back and looked. A 31-chapter gap between POVs is the largest gap in all A Storm of Swords. The only person who gets close is Samwell, with a 29-chapter gap, between his third and fourth POVs. And as we saw last week, he semi-borrows one from Bran at the night fort. Other than that, no one else gets close, not even perennial outlier Daenerys. 31 chapters is pretty insane and I think intentional. Everything was going as well as you could hope for Sansa at the beginning of this book. 
She had found some level of comfort and even a real hope for the future in the Tyrells. All that was stolen when she was married off to Tyrion, and I think this gap is meant to represent that. Sansa has just been adrift, she's just been going through the motions ever since. That hope is all but gone. Every day is like every other day. And that's before the news of her family. All she's got now is the hope of Dontos, but I still think she has been purposely left on the sidelines because that's how she currently feels, she's just an extra. Hence the rapid increase in chapters from here on out, where she's finally brought back to life and is active once more. For a little further nerding, this gap is the largest for Sansa in any of the four books in which she is present, even in Feast where she only has three chapters. In fact, I went back and did some real digging. In all of the first four books, that is a little mental for number of POVs for me to check through, only one POV has a gap larger than 31 chapters, and it's Davos Seaworth between Davos 1 and 2 and Clash of Kings. Clearly, Sansa is a much higher tier character than Davos, and she's in King's Landing, the epicentre of a subcontinent, whereas Davos was out on the perimeter on a forgotten island where the plot was really still to get going. And even then, he only beat Sansa by one at a 32 chapter gap. So this really is a major beat for Sansa's arc and absolutely feels intentional in terms of George's structuring. Here's our first quote of this chapter. Her father had been there, and her brothers, all of them warm and safe. If only dreaming could make it so. Lady was dead though. Rob, Bran, Rickon, Aya, her father, her mother, even Septimordain. All of them are dead but me. She was alone in the world now. This chapter begins with a nice little stab in the heart as Sansa immediately rounds up what she has lost and what that has meant for her. We knew we would eventually have to deal with the information of how Sansa felt about all this, but it's difficult regardless. Iron Bran had bad dreams closer to the Red Wedding, and perhaps Sansa did too, though she has no wolf to make that connection anymore. But then again, Lady is present in the dream, so maybe that's the name Tyrion heard her mumble in the previous chapter. But these opening paragraphs just go to show that sweet dreams can be just as painful when you wake up in the opposite reality. Next quote. Her torments would soon be ended, one way or the other. This is a superb way to ratchet up the tension for this wedding, even when we've already got Tyrion's concerns over a family tiff. It's important to get this in early. It's been so long since we've been with Sansa, it's easy to forget Dontos promised this as the day of her escape. Now literally the only thing she's had to look forward to, and as she says, she's going all in. There's no Tyrell option, no hope that Rob will win the war and rescue her. This will either work or it won't. So again, we as readers know something is going to happen at this wedding, to Sansa anyway. We just had no idea it'd be something so major. Wispy banners swirled from atop their towers and reached the fast-fading stars. The sun was coming up behind them, and she watched them go from black to grey to a thousand shades of rose and gold and crimson. Soon the wind mushed them together, and there was only one castle where there had been two. I had completely forgotten about this little bit of imagery here at the beginning, and I'm still not sure I'm really pinning down its meaning. The word rose is flipping me a bit. At first, I thought it was a description of Sansa's life, from stark black and white to nearly a rose of the Tyrells to eventually Lannister colours, joining with the Starks to make the Sansa she is now. But I'm unsure whether Rose purely indicates the joining of Houses Tyrell and Lannister that will happen on this day, especially given that a tower is falling into ruins as Brella mentions, much like Joffrey will be doing later. Or whether Rose is just supposed to represent a colour, and this is just Sansa's straight jump from Stark to Lannister. Perhaps it has something to do with apprehension. Tyrion knows he will have to put up with his relatives today, but Sansa is going to have to do the exact same, and this seems like it will be one of the first official public functions she'll have to attend as an official Lannister. Speaking of Brella, Sansa clearly doesn't want to speak of ruined castles, given what she's just been dreaming about. They have made me a Lannister, Sansa thought bitterly. This seems to be following on pretty strongly to what we just said, and of course, Sansa's inner thoughts were going to increase in ferocity on this subject. If we think she hated the Lannisters before, that opinion has surely doubled since the Red Wedding, and being one of them must make her feel even dirtier and more corrupted. Next quote. The imp's clothing was soiled and unkempt, Sansa noticed. 
It looked as though he had slept in it. Will you be changing into fresh garb, my lord? Your new doublet is very handsome. The doublet is handsome, yes, Tyrion put the cup aside. Come, Pod, let us see if we can find some garments to make me look less dwarvish. I would not want to shame my lady wife. Oh dear, the uncomfortableness and passive aggressiveness is just reeking off the page already, and we can likely make a guess about how this day is going to go for everyone. This is just a dance that's been going on since Tyrion and Sansa's wedding, when neither of them know how to say something without either offending the other or believing they've just been offended or some such and round and round and round it goes, as we see here. It's just a horrible situation to be in. We know that Tyrion is in a bad mood because he's just mentally agreed to end things with Shay, making all interactions with Sansa sting that much more. We've got more than enough recipe for disaster here. Quick side quote here. Nothing like a hearty breakfast to whet one's appetite for the 77 course feast to follow. So this is a throwaway line in the context of this chapter, but remember it wasn't so long ago this city was starving, and I doubt the population has food to spare even now. So this is the best example of the upper class wasting food for appearances sake and not properly appreciating the value of things. As if 77 courses wasn't egregious enough, they are having breakfast before it. We won't see the effects of this yet, but the overindulgence and stupidity will take root in the city's small folk and come back to haunt Cersei in feast. As for the beginning of the feast itself, Sansa firstly confirms for us it is exactly Joffrey that Sansa so fears, making it a bit sad and a bit ironic that her and Tyrion share something so strong in both of them but can't connect over it. From there, we start getting Joffrey's gifts, playing ever more into the image of the spoiled child because we can be sure George wants to squeeze everything he can out of his original villain before the big goodbye. Now what I love about this scene is everyone giving Joffrey gifts he probably is never going to use and definitely isn't going to appreciate. A golden bow? He prefers a simple crossbow, apparently. Riding boots and a leather saddle? Silver spurs? When was the last time we even saw him ride? Aside from his very first scene where he sparred with Rob and Sir Roderick Cassell, we've never seen him take any interest in riding or jousting or working on any of the knightly skills. Sure, he'd like to sail to Dragonstone and chop off Stannis' head, but without a doubt, he was never going to put any of these things to use. It seems like, collectively, the Court of King's Landing is trying to shoehorn Joffrey into the king they are hoping for rather than the one they are obviously getting. And they continue to turn a blind eye when Joffrey drops the Gantry Act once Tyrion comes along. If you read less, Uncle Imp, perhaps Lady Sansa would have a baby in her belly by now. He laughed, and when the king laughs, the court laughs with him. Don't be sad, Sansa. Once I've gotten Queen Marjorie of child, I'll visit your bedchamber and show my little uncle how it's done. Not only is this exactly what both Tyrion and Sansa were concerned about coming into the day, it's also a major escalation in terms of what Joffrey is doing in public. This isn't a whispered comment to Sansa while they dance, or something held within the small council chambers. This is an official event in front of dozens of important people where he is not bothering to hide his very worst tendencies. In fairness, Tyrion escalated it to a public level at his own wedding, but this is something else from Joffrey. Here he is, publicly and brazenly declaring he's going to cuck his uncle, rape Sansa, and it's all being done in front of people about to become his in-laws. Clearly, any restraints Joffrey once had are coming apart at the seams. Is this him just acting out because of the KO Tywin levelled him with in a recent Tyrion chapter? Perhaps, but either way, it is fitting that Joffrey should be at his very worst before his final fall. And we can definitely see why Sansa might think this whole thing is going to turn into blood as early as breakfast, but Tyrion opts for wine instead. Ironic that he clearly turns down the options of harming Joffrey here, only for this abuse to later be used as evidence against him. Next come the two presents most likely to make Joffrey like Robert, a cup and a sword. Not that Joffrey would ever actually use a sword for the things he claims he would, but I imagine there'd be plenty of abuse he can think up with it. And if he had lived, there's no doubt in my mind, he would come to love the drink as much as his father did. Father, you know, quote marks. After all, who is there to tell him no? 
With the presentation of the sword, we see the payoff from Tywin's sword talk several Tyrion chapters ago, and it seems the design went splendidly. But there is a purpose in this, and the chalice as well, again geared at making Joff seem kingly. Like we mentioned in that previous Tyrion chapter, Tywin wants Joffrey to have a big glittery sword to be proud of, because Stannis does, so it's a matter of optics, even if Tywin would never admit to such. Helpfully, Joffrey even mentions how it's better than Stannis's Lightbringer straight away, while Kevin very dutifully says, a king's sword. Yeah, I'm sure that line wasn't scripted at all. They are desperate to make Joffrey look like a king, because Tywin is becoming more and more aware of what he truly is. While we're talking of the blade, what a supremely awful name Widow's Whale is for a sword. Yes, there is this connection of naming a sword such, and then the only widow you end up making being your own wife, but still, come on Joffrey, you can do better. The chalice is used to the same effect. This is not a cup declaring Lannister, or as it technically should be, Baratheon dominance, but one that unites the realm as one once more, because smarter heads know that Westeros really needs to get together to survive. Safe to say, that message is lost on Joffrey. How about this quote from when Tyrion gives a gift? Joffrey brought Widow's Whale down in a savage two-handed slice onto the book that Tyrion had given him. The hairy lover cover parted at a stroke. Sharp, I told you. I am no stranger to Valerian steel. It took him half a dozen further cuts to hack the thick tome apart, and the boy was breathless by the time he was done. It's no surprise to me that in a chapter where George is trying to get across just how awful Joffrey is before he's removed from stage, we have him destroying a book. Because honestly, because honestly, what is more villainous to folk like George or you and me? The idiot can't even do it in less than six strokes, with a Valerian steel sword no less. No wonder Tyrion is so furious. All book lovers are with him on this point. Next quote. Tyrion was staring at his nephew with his mismatched eyes. Perhaps a knife, sire, to match your sword. A dagger of the same fine Valerian steel, with a dragonbone hilt, say. Joff gave him a sharp look. You? Yes, a dagger to match my sword. Good, he nodded. Uh, a gold hilt with rubies in it. Dragonbone is too plain. Tyrion's reply to Joffrey's latest jab is very, very interesting. It's a complete out of the blue for the reader, seeing as we don't have access to Tyrion's mind here, and is seemingly a redrudging of a storyline most have probably assumed abandoned. We'll get a bit more on it all when we get back inside Tyrion's head in the next chapter, but I think the main thing is George using up his last opportunity to get a reaction from Joffrey on the accusation. It's a bit of a strange one, it does smack slightly of trying to round off something that has fallen away from the importance of the main plot, which is striking if we care to remember how imperative this whole knife thing was in A Game of Thrones. If we're being generous, I think the reintroduction of the knife storyline into Jamie and Tyrion's mind is firstly for something for the two brothers to connect over, but more importantly, George getting us in the habit of thinking back to A Game of Thrones and the many root causes of the war just before we get our huge reveal on Littlefinger in the final chapter. Either way, what's important is that Tyrion's mention clearly puts Joffrey off kilter because how in the world does uncle know such a thing and why is he bringing it up now? But we'll return to this in the next chapter. After the breakfast, we get a brief scene with Oberyn and Ilaria that gives us some distinct clues. Firstly, as Sansa is examining Ilaria, she remembers what Shay said about Ilaria once almost being a sex worker and now being near a princess, giving us some very distinct ideas on the kind of ascension Shay has envisioned for herself. But more prominent in this moment is Oberyn and Tyrion having a debate about the fire and blood type history. Actually, a bit more fire and blood volume 2, but there's a little bit of crossover here. The debate firstly lets us know the rumours are completely true about Oberyn. He is a very learned man who is more knowledgeable than most characters Tyrion gets to meet, but also paints some very clear foreshadowing about what is to come, as well as how Tyrion views his current situation. How about this quote? Viserys might have only reigned a year, but he ruled for fifteen, or Daron Ward and Baelor prayed. He made a sour face. And if he did remove his nephew, can you blame him? Someone had to save the realm from Baelor's follies. An underappreciated Uncle Hand who actually did all the ruling while having to deal with the possibly mad and undeserving King Nephew. Hmm. 
Yes, this one is not on the particularly subtle side, and that final line is quite telling. Oberyn tries to be even more direct when he essentially asks why Joffrey is mad, but Tyrion is either too guarded or too preoccupied to question why Oberyn might be asking him such a question. Once we're back in the litter, we find out why. His mind is really working on this Valerian steel dagger hypothesis. You know, like he should have done when he first got to King's Landing, and the trail was still hot, and Littlefinger was still there, idiotically dropping clues left, right and centre. With the exception of the Littlefinger part, I think Tyrion at least recognises this should have been a priority much earlier. Here's a quote. I should have known better. I should have seen a good many things. And don't forget, Oberyn also does get a little mention of poison in here, which is pretty on brand for him and some of the theories about Tywin's death. Tyrion turns his investigation to Bran and Rob's interactions with Joffrey back at Winterfell, something, again, that seems so long ago to Sansa and the reader both. We can almost hear Tyrion's mind working to connect the dots, just as it once did in that singular Lannister lunch we also had back at Winterfell. Tyrion knows his family, and knows that there is some involvement on some level, somewhere. He just can't quite see it. It's very, very interesting that he hungers for this evidence now, because let's say he found out completely and utterly without refute that Joffrey sent a cat spore. What can he actually do with that information? He can prove to himself that Joffrey is mad and evil and that Tyrion is right, but I think he already knows that. He could present it to Tywin, but would Tywin react or change anything? No. He could even show it to Sansa as proof that he had nothing to do with the attempt on Bran's life, but Sansa is barely aware of those accusations anyway. Is there any kind of legal argument he could bring against the king for attempted murder? Especially if we try and squeeze Guest right in there, although that becomes very complicated seeing as Joffrey had already left by that point, etc, etc, let's not go into it. I'm going to assume Tyrion can't do anything legally, so maybe he wants this absolute evidence to excuse him from really trying to kill Joffrey later on. It's all hypothetical, of course, given what's about to happen, but it's so interesting to see his obsession grow. Let's return our focus to Sansa before the chapter ends. She obviously has about a tenth of the information we do about all this, so she can't understand why Tyrion is asking these questions or suddenly putting her under intense focus. And this inner thought speaks volumes about their relationship. He looks like a starving child. I have no food to give him. Why wouldn't he leave me be? Because Sansa's dead on. Tyrion absolutely is starving in this scene. He's starving for Sansa to realise or accept that he is not as bad as the rest of his family, that he's never done any harm to her family, that he generally is on her side. But Sansa simply doesn't have that capability. He's a Lannister, as we say, over and over again. And as unfair as that is, that's the bottom line. She can't give him that acceptance because she's right back to where she was before, wondering if every question is a trick to make her speak something that can then be used against her later. It is her against the world. Unfortunately, Tyrion is included in the world category. Or, to look at it another way, Tyrion is desperate for some clue that will help him in his, in his investigation, and Sansa just can't help in that regard either. She doesn't have that information, and even if she unknowingly did, having to remember her old life and how her family died is just so incredibly painful at this moment. To double up on that point and to close the chapter, let's look at an interaction that happened just before. You loved your brothers, much as I love Jamie. Is this some Lannister trap to make me speak treason? My brothers are traitors, and they've gone to traitors' graves. It is treason to love a traitor. Her little husband snorted. Rob rose in arms against his rightful king. By law, that made him a traitor. The others died too young to know what treason was. He rubbed his nose. Sansa, do you know what happened to Bran at Winterfell? I believe this is Tyrion looking at the Starks and seeing a family as they should be. A family that genuinely loves each other. Hence him making the connection to the only loving relationship he knows. Jamie. He follows that up by actively defending the Starks and what has become of them. He already knows what Joffrey and Cersei did to Ned, what Tyrion arranged to happen to Rob and Catelyn, and now worries that Joffrey might have at least tried to kill Bran. He knows what his family is, and he wants no part of it. He doesn't want to be tired of that brush. He wants to be part of this pure, loving family that technically he is now a part of due to his marriage. 
but he simply can't make the leap over to Camp Stark and to his wife because the name who made him what he is drags him down, making it impossible to become what he wants to be. To look at it this way, this might be one of the saddest Tyrion moments of all. Just someone who wants to be good, who wants to be of the good people, but is held back by the real concern of his relations just being intrinsically evil. And of course, the real kicker is that we get all this just one chapter before Tyrion starts tumbling down the path that will eventually result in him becoming a Lannister worthy of the name and the complete opposite of the purity of the Starks. He came oh so close. Major alas alarms. Speaking of Tyrion, why don't we return to his head now for Tyrion 8. And yes, it's that one. Goodbye Joffrey. <laughs> Let's kick off with a quote. The sleep this night he'd spent with Shay was making itself felt too, but most of all, he wanted to strangle his bloody royal nephew. The grand irony of Joffrey's death and Tyrion's framing is that not only is it pure blind bad luck that sets up all the physical evidence or what people happen to see and overhear that points to Tyrion, but his actual own thoughts as well. Tyrion's bloody nephew is literally going to be strangled by a poison named the Strangler by the end of this chapter, and Tyrion is already wishing it here. Let's be fair and say this chapter cut off an hour of story time before it does, and we didn't get any POV from Tyrion after. Could we really be sure in saying Tyrion didn't do it? The motivation is not just subtle, we're far past that now. We've got motive in the recent insults, motive in thinking what danger Joffrey represents to the general populace, jealousy over Joffrey's crown being won for him by Tyrion, and that's a bit of a simplification, but I get Tyrion's point. It's all adding up. That desire to see Joffrey dead continues as Detective Tyrion makes a return, and we get a confirmation of what we could infer from Sansa's chapter. Tyrion is all but certain that Joffrey sent the cats for, and is actually semi-impressed at the thinking Joffrey put into the whole thing, avoiding multiple possible footfalls. But it all comes back to the why, and that's something the reader has to ask as well. The very first major event of this series was Jamie pushing Bran out of the window, and it was something we were actually present for. We've since gained Jamie as a POV, and Cersei's been as close as you can get without actually getting that title, so we've seen that there was at least a reason, a despicable, selfish reason, but a reason for that event. Whereas for Joffrey, there's nothing at all. Bran had done nothing to him, and I've never been too hot on the idea that Joffrey would think this might impress Robert somehow. I can understand him having that urge to connect with a man he thinks to be his father. I just have a hard time believing even Joffrey could think that this would be a valid way to do it. I do wonder if Joffrey just had such a psychopathic need to cause a person to die, he took advantage of his first time out of the Red Keep, at least I think it is, where he could simply get away with it. Either way, I think Tyrion is pretty dead on with it just being simple cruelty. And quick side note here, like Kevin and Tywin before him, Tyrion just doesn't think of Littlefinger because he's not your traditional threat. It's a repeat of the same annoyance we felt back in Clash. No, Baelish didn't have anything to do with the actual Catspaw himself, but he is the one who weaponized the knife. Uh -huh. Nice little uh, pun for you there. And used it to get Tyrion captured and start off a gigantic war. So he does deserve the spotlight, but people refuse to point it that way. Next quote. He squirmed uncomfortably. He ought to have held his tongue at breakfast. The boy knows I know now. My big mouth will be the death of me, I swear it. But Tyrion's inner investigation turns up a new aspect we likely didn't think of in Sansa's chapter. Increased danger to Tyrion's person. He knows he has Cersei actively after him, ensured the same with his Joff interactions from his own wedding, and I doubt has forgotten Mandon Moore taking a swipe at his nose. But Joffrey's sudden stammering over Valerian steel daggers doesn't only indicate guilt, but that Joffrey may well overreact to silence an uncle he thinks knows of his secret crime. Rereaders know this line of thinking isn't going to get anywhere, thanks to chapter's end, again, but for first-time readers, this is a very real threat and can easily add to the tension they might be feeling at this wedding, during which, obviously, something is going to happen. The formatting is just too similar to the Red Wedding for them to think any different. 
Next quote. Tyrion shifted his weight from one stunted leg to the other, trying to see between his father and his Uncle Kevin. If the gods are just, Joff will make a hash of this. The boy king was as tall at 13 as his bride was at 16. He would not require a fool's back to climb upon. We know that Joffrey is no normal 13-year-old, and even if he were, he is fulfilling an adult role as a king. But it still becomes really, really evident just how intensely Tyrion is mentally competing and comparing himself to a child. This chapter, this whole collection of chapters, is so intensely Tyrion versus Joffrey, it emanates off nearly every single line. Tyrion is desperate for any kind of one-up, anything to look in his favour instead of his nephews, and we also get a confirmation of how badly it affected him when Sansa wouldn't kneel. All of it comes back to a feeling of injustice. Tyrion believes himself, ultimately, a good person. At the very least, he's better than Joffrey, which I think we can all agree on. Yet everything went wrong on that day, whereas the optics are perfect for Joffrey. How can that be fair? There's obviously been an intense rivalry between the two since that first scene we saw them share back in Winterfell, but this is on another level now. Tyrion wants anything to make him feel like he has a one-up. His ego just needs it incredibly badly. Quick side note here. Sir Loras and Sir Meryn led the procession from the Sept in their white-scale armour and snowy cloaks. So that's a nice representation of this beautiful versus rotting theme we have going on in Tyrion's mind, because though they are dressed the same, Loras Tyrell and Meryn Trant probably look like two different ends of the same spectrum. My lady. Tyrion offered Sansa his arm. She took it dutifully, but he could feel her stiffness as they walked up the aisle together. She never once looked down at him. I include this line very quickly because of that last sentence, she never once looked down at him. Tyrion has just said he purposely wasn't looking at her only a minute ago, but now he highlights her doing the same. More than likely, if we had Sansa's POV here, she'd be thinking something similar. She probably isn't looking at him because she thinks it might anger him about their bridal coke ordeal. It's these kind of misunderstandings and misconnections that have come to define their marriage. One more quick quote from this scene. Would that I contrive some mission to take me out of the city. Littlefinger was the clever one. I really like when George opts to go completely on the nose with his subtlety. It's a good reminder that Peter Baelish is supposedly nowhere near at this point, but I feel like rereaders get a little smirk on this one. Through A Song of Ice and Fire, we've had instances of two POVs experiencing the same thing or similar things between them, the two main weddings in this book being the best example. But I don't think we've ever got such a mirrored experience and an easy com comparison as being in Sansa's head for one little ride and in Tyrion's mind for the return journey. We get a confirmation of what we thought last chapter about him truly wanting to break through and reach her. Unfortunately, he goes the complete wrong way about it with suggesting a trip to Castle Rock. Sansa likely feels this would just be akin to Tyrion showing off his captured trophy and a chance to rub some more money and power in her face. Other than the Red Keep, it's probably the place she wants to go least in the world. Tyrion does work that out eventually, but not before he already presumes she is thinking on his physical appearance, because that is always what's at the forefront of his mind, so he projects it onto Sansa here. It's easy to appreciate how difficult it is with Sansa being so damn good at not giving an inch of ground without being obtuse or rude, and why that frustrates Tyrion. What comes through incredibly strongly in this litter scene is how much Tyrion is really worried about retribution from Joffrey. Plus, it's classic to add in some what-could-have-beens just before everything goes wrong. Rob had his battle plan for Mount Kaelin, Tyrion has his jaunts around Old Town and the Free Cities. Alas, alarms again. There are no less than three thoughts about Tyrion now being in real danger in this short passage. I'll read them to you here. Number one. The more he thought about what Joff had done to the lives of four kings, the more it troubled him. There was a message there. Oh yes. Number two. In three years, that cruel boy will be a man, ruling in his own right, and every dwarf with half his wits will be a long way from King's Landing. And number three. The boy will be as tall and strong as Jamie one day, he thought, and I'll still be a dwarf beneath his feet, and one day he's like to make me even shorter. That's all within about four paragraphs, so the feeling is pretty intense now. 
Tyrion feels more vulnerable than usual, knowing he's lost essentially all of his protection, minus Bronn. And that might even suggest why he's so fixated on the Bran thing. If Joffrey is going to order the death of a boy who's done him no harm whatsoever, what might he do to Tyrion? It's all building, the pressure is increasing, even in the current setting of extreme tedium during this wedding Tyrion so wants to be over. When Tyrion is back in his chambers, we get an update on the realm at large, crucially focusing on the dominoes that have fallen in reaction to Rob's death. Most important is that Seaguard, expected to give trouble, has already relented to the phrase. We'll learn later in Feast that this was only achieved when Blackwalder threatened to hang Patrick Malister after him being taken captive at the Red Wedding, so we can see the phrase had a clear game plan for what to do with their prizes. That just leaves Riverrun and Raventree Hall defiant against the crown, although the latter doesn't even get a mention here. There's more talk of Freys and Greywalk again and Randall Tarly and Paxter Redwine's fleet and this very real sense of everything coming to a close. All compass points are accounted for, so what could possibly befall Joffrey? But that is much the point, isn't it? Rob had an army and a direwolf. Joffrey seemingly has everything, but he'll still be dead by chapter's end. George's message is clear. No one is safe and politics can be just as sharp as a sword. Or perhaps there truly is power in King's blood and leeches, no matter what you've got protecting you. Depends which side of the fence you've all down on. Tyrion likely prefers musing on the war to having to walk into a room with two particular women. Two quotes here. Sansa would be in there, dressing for the feast. Shay as well. Wine pod. And then, Shay was helping Sansa with her hair when they entered the bedchamber. Joy and grief, he thought when he beheld them there together. Laughter and tears. Tyrion needs more and more wine to get through the difficult parts of the day, and this is definitely one of them, being presented with the two sides of his life, the public and the secret, as well as the positive and the negative that he notes. It's just all too difficult. He's been forced to choose grief and tears over joy and laughter because of his family, his duty, and because it's what will keep Shay safe. But this seems like the fate's rubbing his nose in it, making him physically look upon the choice that he's had to make, what he's giving up, and what he'll have for the rest of his life. Hence, more wine. This is too much of an emotional toll, especially when Shay sows off a bit more of her ambition and wanting to put herself in with the big dogs. How bitter it'd be for Tyrion to give everything up, only for Shay to be captured and used against him anyway. And then they return to everyone else and go back down to the party, so to speak, and we have this quote. Lancel's hair turned white and brittle, and he was thin as a stick. Without his father beside him holding him up, he would have surely collapsed. Yet when Sansa praised his valour and said how good it was to see him getting strong again, both Lancel and Sir Kevin beamed. She would have made Joffrey a good queen, and a better wife, if he had had the sense to love her. I really do adore this paragraph where Tyrion takes note of Sansa's skill, mainly just because it is good, and so unfortunately rare, for Sansa's talents to ever be recognised or praised, but also because it is so damn impressive. Let's remember, she's doing this while still incredibly depressed about the Red Wedding, while still trapped in a loveless marriage, while still a prisoner of the crown. And she's making members of the family she hates beam she's so good. Imagine what a happy, enthusiastic Sansa would be able to do. Let us hope we find out one day. I'm sure we especially all like the endorsement that Sansa would make a good queen. I could definitely see some Alisanne comparisons once she comes into her own. I don't think it's coincidence that following a paragraph based on the nice side of politics, of an innocent girl being polite and kind to people, comes the darker side, and the definitely not innocent, when Elena Tyrell comes a fussing. The wind has been at your hair though, the little old woman reached up and fussed at the loose strands, tucking them back into place and straightening Sansa's hairnet. I was very sorry to hear about your losses, she said as she tugged and fiddled. Your brother was a terrible traitor, I know, but if we start killing men at weddings, they'll be even more frightened of marriage than they are presently. It really is the throwaway line of throwaway lines, tucking them back into place and straightening Sansa's hairnet. How could anyone have possibly guessed what that meant on the first read, or second or third? 
Here's the peak of George's secret laying powers, and an absolute gem to go back and find. Of course made all the better by Elena immediately following the condemnation of killing men at weddings. What is interesting is Elena inviting Sansa to Highgarden and her obvious cover of explaining Tyrion away by expecting him to be off at war, despite us just explaining there really aren't many battles left to fight. Much of what goes into Tyrion being accused of Joffrey's murder is outside of Elena's control, but she can guess from context that Tyrion is going to be imprisoned or killed after the poisoning, freeing up Sansa to maybe get away from King's Landing. Then it's also logical to assume Sansa will be arrested too, so is Elena being genuine in her gambit here or just keeping up the nice nice act? Once we enter the throne room, we see the show is in full blast once more. We've got all the trimmings, just as we've seen so many times in this particular room. We've even got people riding in on horses again, because as Tyrion noted, the entire function of this event is to make a proclamation of strength to the wider world, so everything has to look the part. Although I enjoy the particular note of the gallery being filled with musicians, just to remind ourselves about the other wedding we saw so recently. And out of everyone, Tyrion and Sansa get to be seated with Garland and Leonette. That's some damn fine luck considering who some of the other guests are. 77 dishes, while there are still starving children in this city, and men who would kill for a radish. They might not love the Tyrells half so well if they could see us now. So that's Tyrion putting words to our earlier comments, there's also mention of them eating a boar. I'm going to assume this isn't the king killer that Robert wanted served at a feast. Probably not. She fiddled nervously with her hair, and looked down to the table where Joffrey sat with his Tyrell queen. Does she wish it were her in Marjorie's place? Tyrion frowned. Even a child should have better sense. Again, Tyrion proves he's just out of sync with his wife's emotions. We know that Sansa isn't jealous. She's concerned. She feels bad for Marjorie that she's about to marry into a monster, in a place that would have been Sansa's before. She's glad, not jealous, yet is still a good enough person to worry about her replacement's safety. I wonder if that line about her hair, and then looking down to Joffrey, was supposed to incite some wondering about Sansa being in on the whole thing. Don't really see how that would work, given that we have Sansa's POV up next, and discover that she knows nothing about it. Perhaps it's just George laying another hair reference for us to find later. For example, touching her hair because something suddenly feels different, maybe just a tad lighter. Hmm. Following this, we also get a quick paragraph of Tyrion looking upon some unnamed lovers, a man and his pregnant wife, showing themselves off as perhaps the happiest people we ever meet in Westeros. That sense of what could have been all before it comes tumbling down is rising again, as well as getting a glimpse of what Tyrion might truly want for himself as we did with his thoughts on the Starks. Instead, he has to compare that image with what he has with Sansa, and points out all the physical elements could be the same. He could kiss her, he could impregnate her, but they would never be like this unnamed couple because the love simply isn't there. Hence, more wine again. Quick side note, there's 77 courses to be described in detail. Do we think George got really, really excited knowing this chapter was coming up and he could really let fly of his food descriptions? It's possible. Next quote on Sansa. No, my lord. She looked away from him and feigned an unconvincing interest in Moonboy pelting Sir Dontos with dates. This is a brilliant line for the Irony Awards. Calling Sansa's interest unconvincing, when we know is absolutely genuine, is great stuff, and shows even hyper-intelligent Tyrion Lannister can get things wrong. These little hints are superb for upping our tension as well, as we know Sansa is uncomfortable because she's nervous about her potential escape, while Tyrion is none the wiser, and the reader always likes to know a little more than the character in situations such as these. Next quote. No, my lady, Sir Garland said. My lord of Lannister is made to do great deeds, not to sing of them. But for his chain and his wildfire, the foe would have been across the river, and if Tyrion's wildlings had not slain most of Lord Stannis' scouts, we would have never been able to take them unawares. His words made Tyrion feel absurdly grateful, and helped to mollify him, as Galeon sang endless verses about the valour of the boy king and his mother, the Golden Queen. She never did that, Sansa blurted out suddenly. Okay, first half of that quote first. Again, Garland comes through as just a great guy. 
He's not buying into the propaganda, but instead telling it like it is and giving Tyrion some much deserved due. We know how much this means to Tyrion, so this passage is genuinely heartwarming. The line about the wildlings and the scouts especially stands out because it's absolutely dead on, and I don't think anyone, even Tyrion, has brought up this particular point before. Consider this is all coming from Garland, specifically, the man who had the most prominent role of all in the Battle of Blackwater. He could easily just be harping on about his own success, instead of giving credit to Tyrion. And as for the second half, I love, love, love that last line about Sansa being unable to control herself when she hears lies about Cersei doing her duty during the battle, instead of just getting plastered and pissing off. Sansa can stay quiet and calm through almost anything that Lannisters throw at her, but not that injustice. What's sad about it is, again, this is yet something else that her and Tyrion actually share, a deep annoyance at people getting credit when they shouldn't, when both of them were the ones to actually stay and get the job done. Alas alarms be a ringing. Before long, we come to the cruelest cruelty of Joffrey's, and Littlefinger's we'll later discover, one that settles deep in the pit of our stomachs, the dwarf jousting. It's a perfect design, this insult hits on almost all of Tyrion's major fears and shoots his most prominent right up there into everyone's attention, being mocked for his disability, being made fun of and used as a mere source of amusement, being made to seem like less than a real man. Having been in Tyrion's head for this long, and we truly didn't need this long to work it out, this is a horribly traumatic experience for Tyrion, especially when he looks upon the dais. It hurts to hear the whole hall laughing, of course, but it's a double sting when he sees Tywin, Cersei and Joffrey amusing themselves so. His three great sources of consternation and emotional distress all getting a kick out of him. It is no wonder at all why this is the final straw for Tyrion, and now the tension really skyrockets when he decides to hold nothing back. If Joffrey can step over a line, so can he. Let's get this quote, starting with Joffrey. Who else will challenge our tiny champion? With a gleeful smile, he turned towards Tyrion. Uncle, you'll defend the honour of my realm, won't you? You can ride the pig. The laughter crashed over him like a wave. Tyrion Lannister did not remember rising, nor climbing on his chair, but he found himself standing on the table. The hall was a torchlit blur of leering faces. He twisted his face into the most hideous mockery of a smile the Seven Kingdoms had ever seen. The whole arrangement was bad enough, but Joffrey had to go one further and single Tyrion out, as if the fact they are dwarves wasn't doing that enough. The fact that Tyrion doesn't remember rising and getting on the table tells us we're past logic now. We're working on pure instinct so we can expect something juicy. Tyrion doesn't disappoint, but first we get this excellent description of him leaning into his role as the monster, as the terrible half-man, and basically being what they want him to be. He follows it up in a second, with him blowing a kiss to Cersei, because you know what? Gloves are off. He's going to take the fight to them. He could not have said which was sweeter. The instant of shocked silence, the gale of laughter that followed, or the look of blind rage on his nephew's face. Joffrey moves past verbal barbs and opts for the physical when he comes and pours his huge chalice all over Tyrion. Again, this is in front of the entire court. There is no better place to humiliate and downgrade someone. This first gives Sir Garland the awesome credit. He not only tries to warn Tyrion, but then has the balls to reprimand his king, Joffrey of all people, as well. That is some serious stuff. But Tyrion regains his wits quickly and offers Joffrey a chance to save face in the same way that Marjorie and Elena do. On another, slightly saner person, it might have worked, but not Joffrey. His blood is up, the madness is in him, and he desires only escalation, which is exactly what he gets. It's not meant to be an honour, Joffrey screamed. Bend down and pick up my chalice. Tyrion did as he was told, but as he reached for the handle, Joff kicked the chalice through his legs. Pick it up, are you as clumsy as you are ugly? We all know the sliding scale of temper, and Joffrey is quickly picking up speed. There's no jokes now, no cleverness in his retorts. He just wants to cause as much pain and embarrassment as possible. He just wants the ego boost. It's fitting, really, that the whole court will get to see Joffrey at his worst before the end. Now, George gives us the quickest beats here, quickest gaps in the tension. Everything calms down just for a few seconds. And there's a few things fit in here. 
One is Ilan Payne and his sword. Sansa, she makes a deal about ice, what, what's happened to her father's sword. And I'm really unclear on what sword this actually is in Sir Ilan's hand. Very, really not clear. Someone's going to have to tell me. But as well as that, we get how close Tyrion and Sansa come to leaving before the fatal fall. Would that have changed things, truly? Would it have prevented Sansa from getting away? Or might Tyrion have been able to escape too? We shall never know, because Joffrey is just completely unwilling to let any of this go with a shred of dignity, and comes after Tyrion again for more wine. And wine he gets, but that's not all. So we come to a major moment in A Song of Ice and Fire, one so few saw coming, and an absolute surprise in both good ways and bad. Yes, this is a 13-year-old boy looking to his mother as he suffocates, but it is also Joffrey, the Joffrey, one of the most universally hated characters in literature and pop culture, a clearly hated villain from the beginning, a monster in child's clothing who has no other side to him other than psychopathic tendencies and a genuine pleasure in torment. So it's pretty hard not to damn enjoy what comes next. Joff took another drink, or tried to, but all the wine came spewing back out when another spate of coughing doubled him over. His face was turning red. I, <coughs> I can't. <coughs> the chalice slipped from his hand and dark red wine went running across the dais. Note that each Tyrell makes themselves heard to be useful. Marjorie gasps, Elena orders for help, Garland rushes over to physically assist, and Mace starts bellowing advice. No one could claim that House Tyrell didn't do everything it could to try and save the new in-law. And I'm not even sure Marjorie and Garland are in on it. This might just be lucky coincidence. Heck, I'm not 100% Mace's in on it, but Elena must be pretty happy about how it turns out. But anyway, let's return to the action. We don't want to miss this. Joffrey began to claw at his throat, his nails tearing bloody gouges in his flesh. Beneath the skin, the muscles stood out hard as stone. Prince Tommen was screaming and crying. He is going to die, Tyrion realised. I feel bad for poor Tommen. He's too pure to see such a thing. But I won't deny I take a grim satisfaction in reading this line, especially as a Catelyn fan. Bloody gouges in the flesh, same as a maddened mother tearing into her own face when she saw her son die. And a reference to Stone, also. She's the one who deserves our sympathy. Joffrey didn't arrange the Red Wedding, true, but he took utter delight in it. He takes utter joy in destroying anything, whereas Catelyn spent a life trying to preserve and protect her own family. So from Camp Catelyn, I spit on Joffrey here, and declare that one good turn obviously deserves another. Next quote. He has Jamie's eyes. Only he had never seen Jamie look so scared. The boy's only 13. Joffrey was making a dry clacking noise, trying to speak. His eyes bulged white with terror, and he lifted a hand, reaching for his uncle, or pointing. Is he begging my forgiveness, or does he think I can save him? I think we can safely say Joffrey is not begging for forgiveness in his final moments. Does he think Tyrion can save him? Perhaps. Survival would be the only thought in Joffrey's mind by this point, so if he inwardly believes Tyrion has poisoned him, he might think only Tyrion has the power to unpoison him. The only other option is Joffrey straight up accusing Tyrion with his final act, but I maintain that no one would have the presence of mind to do such as they claw for any chance of oxygen in their final moments. Then we have this. I should leave. Now. Instead, he waddled towards her. His sister sat in a puddle of wine, cradling her son's body. Her gown was torn and stained, her face white as chalk. A thin black dog crept up beside her, sniffing at Joffrey's corpse. I had personally forgotten this line. We've just had two paragraphs of description about the chaos at the hall doors and people fleeing into the night. We know there's a chance he could have escaped, and Tyrion even realises it's in his best interest. But he doesn't. He chooses to walk towards a sister that hates him, and wants to hurt him, that has hurt him. To comfort her? Maybe. We never find out. I get the feeling that at this most key of moments, Tyrion's instinct is to act as a brother. Cersei is the other great villain of the series so far, the other one we love to hate, and yet now we see her brought low as can be, and it brings no joy for Tyrion. Not yet, anyway. Note also the symbolism of Tyrion choosing to pour wine away after drinking pints and pints of the stuff. Seriously, go back and look how much he actually mentions wine in this chapter. He did not choke. Cersei's voice was sharp as Sir Elin's sword. 
My son was poisoned. She looked to the white knight standing helplessly around her. Kingsguard, do your duty. My lady, said Sir Loris Tyrell, uncertain. Arrest my brother, she commanded him. He did this, the dwarf, him and his little wife. They killed my son, your king. Take them, take them both. And that all turns out to be Tyrion's greatest mistake. Could he have fled the castle? Not without considerable help, but he had a damn better chance than being immediately arrested. Cersei breaks out of her pain in the only way she knows how, anger. She lashes out and we see the end of Tyrion's time as a free citizen of King's Landing. The arc is complete. He arrived a hand and is now a prisoner. Before long, he'll be condemned. This is it, the beginning of the end, and after the incredibly emotional Tyrion chapters to come, we'll be only left with his burnt-out, danced Tyrion husk. <sighs> what could have been? What was, but will be forgotten? What superb writing of George to mix what should be a moment of triumph with one of absolute defeat? But the both part of this quote suddenly becomes all important as the question surfaces in our mind. Where is Sansa? Cersei's anger and urgency translates right from chapter to chapter and creates what is maybe our best A Song of Ice and Fire chase scene ever. And that is the next chapter. But before we go, one quick note that I realised late on in writing all these down. Varys is not mentioned whatsoever, either in this or Sansa's last chapter. Did he not attend? It's possible. That's very odd, especially in a Tyrion chapter. I don't know if Varys himself references the wedding later, I'll have to check. Maybe one of you can tell me that he was actually there. But I wonder if it's another mob riot situation, and Varys somehow did know of the plot and didn't want to be anywhere near for possible accusations, especially given that he's a eunuch and more likely to be accused of murder by poison, a la a Game of Thrones. But then absence of so large an event seems just as conspicuous, so... Hmm. And maybe he was there all the time. Either way, let's move on to our next chapter, which is Sansa 5. Far across the city, a bell began to toll. As well as being a nice little callback to when it all changed in A Game of Thrones when Robert died, as Sansa herself will note in a minute, we get the reassurance from this line that Sansa is at least a little way away from the throne room and isn't quite in immediate physical danger. But still, that tension of pursuit and possible capture pervades right through this whole chapter. Let's have a quote from Sansa actually remembering the event. He had not been dead when she left the throne room. He had been on his knees though, clawing at his throat, tearing at his own skin as he fought to breathe. The sight of it had been too terrible to watch, and she had turned and fled, sobbing. I'd forgotten, likely due to the show's influence, that Sansa leaves of her own accord. There's no Dontos to whisk her away just yet. That act alone, just turning and walking out of the throne room, takes an incredible amount of strength and bravery. Let's recall Sansa's entire King's Landing experience, where she has been terrified to even say anything that could be construed as anti-Lannister and wind up getting her in trouble. Watching your father get beheaded will do that to you. So to actually make the leap and make the choice to go for it, knowing full well what it would mean for her if she were caught trying to escape at the best of times, never mind when the king has just been murdered, is a testament to Sansa's inner strength. As she'll say in a moment, her skin has turned to steel. The gods are just, thought Sansa. Robert died at a wedding feast as well. It was Rob she wept for, him and Marjorie. Poor Marjorie, twice wed and twice widowed. Sansa's emotions are going every which way, unsurprisingly. There must be entire vats of adrenaline pumping through her veins at the moment. There's the thrill slash fear of escape, the worry of being caught by the Queen, the worry of being caught by Tyrion, whether Dontos is actually going to come through or not, the death of her largest enemy and tormentor, the fact that the said death was incredibly gruesome, and mixed with it all is a sense of justice or comeuppance for her brother Rob, yet still sadness that Rob has died and Marjorie has lost her husband. And I think that last one might just be because of not thinking clearly in the moment. She'll come to be glad for Marjorie soon enough. With all that going on in her head and still having to remember the logistics of the escape and what she needs to do, no wonder she's got a few hysterical laughs in her. Speaking on logistics, hiding things in trees and doing all these physical things for herself is also new ground for Sansa. Back at Winterfell, she would play around as any child does, but since being a prisoner in the Red Keep, 
She's been wrapped in cotton wool and just carried along in a cloud, unable to do anything for herself. So this then is another marker of her taking control, or taking back agency. There's no whisking off just yet. This is Sansa controlling her own destiny. Next, we return to the hairnet. At first, Sansa fixates on it, purely because there is an irregularity, which goes to show how precarious her situation and emotions are in this state, as she quickly jumps from, from if it's possible for a hairnet to go wrong, it's possible for an escape plan to go wrong. She could have easily folded in this moment, given in to her terror, and just tried to cut her losses. Instead, she focuses on the hairnet, and doesn't hold back when Dontos appears, stinking drunk, because, of course. Sansa pulled away from his touch. You said I must wear the hairnet, the silver net with... What sort of stones are those? Amethysts, black amethysts from a show, my lady. They're no amethysts, are they? Are they? You lied. Black amethysts, he swore. There was magic in them. There was murder in them. Considering the multitude of things she has to think about in this moment, Sansa's mind is working pretty fast here. She proves herself a much better detective than several other characters as she quickly connects Dontus' need for her to wear the net, the missing stone, and the fact that Joffrey just died. It's an interesting opposition. On the one hand, she's obviously glad Joffrey is dead, but on the other, she's now having to worry about whether she's been made an accomplice. She doesn't want that, even if it does rid her of Joffrey. She doesn't want to be part of the same underhanded and cursed deals that killed her brother at a wedding feast, and definitely not with her not even knowing she's involved. It all just adds to the fear, the frenziness of the situation. But still, Dantas is able to persuade her to carry on. After all, what choice does she have? Just as astutely as Tyrion did, Sansa realises how easily she can be painted as a suspect. Motivation was there in terms of her family, her being married to Tyrion, her being on the dais, and now she has the hairnet too. If Tyrion did it, they will think I was part of it as well, she realised with a start of fear. How not? They were man and wife, and Joff had killed her father and mocked her with her brother's death. One flesh, one heart, one soul. Sansa didn't have too long to dwell on whether Tyrion did the deed or not, but this is a good preview of how easily a case can be mounted against him. Sansa was his wife, was around him a good portion of the day, and is more observant than most, yet she is easily taken in by the optics of, of Tyrion and Joffrey's rivalry, as well as the unfortunate inclusion of Tyrion serving Joff's wine. She'll find the truth soon enough, but for now, they must run. Dressed dark, he'd said, yet under his brown hooded cloak he was wearing his old surcoat, red and pink horizontal stripes beneath a black chief, bearing three gold crowns, the arms of House Hollard. I wanted to be a knight, for this at least. Dantos lurched back to his feet and took her arm. Come, be quiet now, no questions. Dantos comes to us at perhaps his most pathetic here. He turns up so drunk he can barely stand, he has to stop and retch. No doubt part of this is because of the increased pressure and the knowledge of what will happen to him if they are discovered. Or perhaps the reason he's drunk is because he needs the booze to relax his guilt over selling Sansa whilst lying to her. Either way, it's hard to contain anger in him here. It's a miracle that they don't get lost or found out. Even as the hypocrisy to wear clothes easily stand out because the sense of being a knight again might instill some bravery or pride in him. Which rings hollow. He wants to be a knight for this most unknightly of acts. George has warped the expectation and trope of a knight saving a princess from the evil castle. Instead, the knight is lying through his teeth, trying to steal a quick kiss when he can, and is selling her on for more drink money without any actual concern for her happiness or well-being. I'm glad to see the back of him in a few pages' time. Still, somehow he manages to get Sansa to the right place as they come to the cliff wall. It's another physical element to Sansa's escape, something she has come across so rarely. Other than some riding with Marjorie, what physicality has Sansa actually had during her imprisonment? And that horse riding didn't include the possibility of capture and death, or falling from a cliff in the middle of the night and breaking her neck. Plus, she's suddenly the one having to comfort and promise things to Dontos, the grown man. The climb down can be looked at as a gateway to Sansa's freedom, a task she must complete herself to earn the way out. How does she find it within to do such? Thus... The castle walls loomed large above her, and for a moment she wanted nothing so much as to pull herself up and run back to her warm rooms in the kitchen keep. Be brave, she told herself. Be brave, like a lady in a song. 
So often, Sansa's detractors use her love of songs as a point of weakness or some mark against her given her innocence back in Game of Thrones. But her... Uh, what's the opposite of detractors? Protractors? Her supporters, anyway, have pointed out how Sansa uses these stories to find an inner strength and bravery. We discussed it at a considerable length, not only during Game of Thrones, but also during the Blackwater. And Sansa is repeating that here, another quote. When she rolled onto her back and stared up at where she had come from, her head swam dizzily and her fingers clawed at the dirt. I did it, I did it, I didn't fall. I made the climb and now I'm going home. It's hard not to share in her giddiness. Another quote. Behind them, the bells were still tolling the boy king's death. The bells are sounding throughout the chapter, but I point out of this quote just to note the synchronisation of her and Catelyn's wedding chapters. Catelyn heard bells at her very worst moment as she killed an innocent in her madness. Sansa hears them as news of the end of her tormentor. Fascinating that they should both share this in their chapters. Plus, Jingle Bell's name was Aegon, the name of kings, so I like this quote doubly. So we get rid of one great villain in one chapter and return with a much bigger one in the next. She knew the voice. He's in the veil, she thought. So Lothar Brune stood next to him with a torch. Lord Peter, Dantos called from the boat. I must needs row back before they think to look for me. Even also saying goodbye to Dantos doesn't equal how awful it is to have Peter Baelish, a pool of slime grown into manhood, back on our page again. Oh, and we thought he was super creepy before, not compared to the stuff we have coming now. Sansa isn't aboard the boat for ten seconds before she receives the first of her new lessons. A bag of dragons buys a man's silence for a while, but a well-placed quarrel buys it forever. He smiled sadly. All he did, he did at my behest. I dared not befriend you openly. When I heard how you saved his life at Joss Turney, I knew he would be the perfect cat's paw. It's a sad moment, her having to realise this man, who she put all her faith into, who was her lone bright spark for so many months, who she risked her very life for, didn't care about her at all. She was a business deal, like Dontost insisted she was to the Tyrells. No one actually saw worth in her. That's what her kindness back on Joffrey's name day brought her. It's incredibly sobering for Sansa to realise such a thing. More annoyingly, Littlefinger is not only dead on, Dontos absolutely would have had sold them out for more money when the time came, but it works perfectly as an initial push to get Sansa to trust him. Everything was him the whole time, he saved her really, he's always cared about her, trust no one but him. It's critical for his overall plan for Sansa, or Elaine rather, so he might as well get started early. She felt tears in her eyes, but whether she wept for Sir Dontos Hollard, for Joff, for Tyrion, or for herself, Sansa could not say. Is it all lies, forever and ever, everyone and everything? Almost everyone. Save you and I, of course, he smiled. Come to the Godswood tonight if you want to go home. <coughs> creepy, creepy, creepy. Manipulation 101. Because Peter Baelish is Peter Baelish, he simply can't resist bragging a bit about how smart he is to this teen girl who is utterly confused at the moment. First, he explains that the dwarf jousting was actually his idea, and it was actually such a bother that he had to explain to Joffrey what nefarious purposes they could be used for. He doesn't go into this much detail, but I would guess that Littlefinger did this in hopes of inciting another argument between Joffrey and Tyrion, so the story of Tyrion murdering Joffrey is all that more believable, and the spotlight drifts ever further from himself. No doubt he had spies at Tyrion's own wedding, and knew how fierce the relationship had become. That theme continues when he says some very clever sounding things about keeping your enemies guessing and baffling opponents. I call bullshit on that as well, because claiming to have zero motive to kill Joffrey rings false. Firstly, Littlefinger fries on chaos. Yes, Tywin still lives, but killing Joffrey is a destabilising factor and definitely creates rifts in the ruling family by pitting Cersei against Tyrion. On top of that, we already know he's been in contact with Joffrey and making suggestions about dwarf jousting to say nothing of his influence in Ned's beheading. Simply, Joffrey is a loose end. He might start talking about how much good advice good old Uncle Peter has been giving him over the years. And if Tywin hears word of that, hmm. or worse, Joffrey might get older and actually figure it out for himself. 
Also bad news. But the bottom line is his motive that it further isolates Sansa, which is priority number one here. We mentioned this way back in Game of Thrones. Littlefinger removed Ned because he was a protector of Sansa. Now he has done the same to Tyrion, leaving her unprotected and vulnerable. She needs to attach herself to someone, and to Peter. Not only that, but he's free to tell her over and over again how she can't possibly leave. She's a wanted criminal, literally nowhere is safe but in his arms. Uh, uh, uh. His final line puts it best. Put Joffrey from your mind, sweetling. Dontos, Tyrion, all of them. They will never trouble you again. You are safe now. That's all that matters. You are safe with me and sailing home. Just before that closing line, he makes some talk about playing the Game of Thrones, which also turns out to be bullshit, because he reveals the whole thing is actually about his childhood issues with Catelyn. Yes, it's been a while since we've discussed poor, bullied Peter growing up to avenge his terrible childhood, standing in front of the mirror, practising lines and jokes. But here he is, in full force, boasting about his times with Catelyn, boasting that he's finally got a hold of what he thinks Eddard Stark stole from him, all whilst brushing Sansa's hair from her face in a bedroom, I should add, boasting that he is winning. Ugh, oh, I hate this man. We get rid of Joffrey, we get Sansa out of King's Landing, but we lose her to Littlefinger. It's a great way to make us readers think. And just two more things quickly added on here at the end to just add into this whole idea of keeping Sansa penned in and needing him. The hairnet was obviously used to get the poison from person A to person B without Elena ever being in trouble of being found carrying. More importantly, it also keeps Sansa in Littlefinger's net by ensuring that she feels guilty and as if she played a role in the whole thing. That's really critical. She has to feel like she had some role. There could legitimately be some kind of crime put against her to keep her in Littlefinger's clutches. In the same way, if Tyrion also winds up executed, it makes his marriage to Sansa much easier to remove, obviously. So Peter can even make romantic moves for himself or Petrova to the highest bidder. So you can just see how everything is mixing into his favour here. And again, I'll say it. I hate this man. Okay. Now we had four quick chapters in a row there. You'll notice the halfway point has been delayed because we didn't want to interrupt the purple wedding stuff. But let's take it here. We'll get the funky music out. It'll be a quick halfway point today just because we've got a lot to get through still. We've got a big old Jamie chapter still to go. So two points. Firstly, just someone I want to highlight is Indie Geek. You might know him as Robert. I've spoken about him before. I've been lucky enough to guest on one of his live streams. I'm sure you'll know he's a big, big YouTube presence. Has multiple series of different videos. He's got videos asking specific questions, specific theories, analyses. He's got other people guesting on those live streams. Like I say, I was lucky enough to be such a person when we talked about castles and Winterfell. And he spreads it out as well. There's Lord of the Rings, there's Westworld. I'm sure there's other things I've been getting. So if you aren't already, and I'm sure you all are, make sure you go and join the Indie Geek community. It's a great little community down there in the uh, in the chat during his videos and elsewhere there's a lot of stuff for you to find a lot of really really great well thought out uh, thinking that you will definitely enjoy so please do go and follow and watch and all those things share away for indie geek and also robert is a fellow brit so double up the respect there now just as quickly the second point today is coincidentally girls gone canon are currently in their jamie pov uh, read through now, as you'll know, the famous Girls Gone Canon pair, Chloe and Eliana, you might know them better as, as Lies and Arbor and Arab Metric on uh, Twitter. They take a character and go through all of their POV chapters through the whole series. They've done Ned, they've done Sansa, you know the ones. John was a big one for them, and they're currently on Jamie. And as luck would have it, Jamie 7 is their most recent episode that they uploaded, I guess, last week by the time you're listening to this. Now, I haven't listened to it yet because I didn't want to listen to theirs and then have to write my own notes on Jamie 7. That would be a bit weird. But I definitely look forward to uh, getting to it now. And so should you. I'm sure all of you. 
already follow and listen to the great Girls Gone Cat. Our alumni guests here once upon a time on Other Faces. We love them dearly for all that they do and I know they are incredibly popular and the fandom. But just in case you don't, go and give them a listen and listen to that same chapter because it's nice to see that chapter looked at from multiple different viewpoints. You've got it from Aziz and the share, you've got it from myself, now you can have it from Chloe and Eliana as well. Okay, that's halfway point today because like I say, we've got a lot to get through so we're going to keep it quick. Let's get back through our final chapter, which as, I, which as I've mentioned, is Jamie Seven. The king is dead, they told him, never knowing that Joffrey was his son as well as his sovereign. It's a fitting line to open a chapter all about Jamie's return and the change within the city with information about Joffrey. Because of all the memories we've been through in the last six Jamie chapters, all the inner monologues and the musings of knighthood, oaths, family pressure, heirdom, Brienne, Tyrion and Cersei, Cersei and Cersei, fatherhood has barely come up at all. It just isn't a bigger part of his character. Do you want to know how many times the word Joffrey comes up in the first six Jamie chapters? Three. And one of them is part of Brienne's dialogue. Another one was his popping up in Jamie's weirwood dream, an aspect that Jamie gives no further thought to whatsoever. Jamie might be a man in change, but gaining some sort of paternal spirit or interest just isn't part of him. Joffrey will become more important to Jamie as the book goes on, but more out of a need for investigation about Tyrion than caring about Joffrey the person. He'll try a bit harder with Tommen and Feast as well, but it still leaves much to be desired. And at this point in time, Joffrey certainly isn't the family member he's interested in. So we begin with a kind of fascinating discovery on how his love for Cersei shuts him off from all else even more than we thought it did. As if we need further proof, Jamie lays it out for us with this quote. He tried to bring the boy's face to mind, but his features kept turning into Cersei's. To Jamie, Joffrey isn't so much an individual person, but just a feature of Cersei's, just a part. The rest of this paragraph is all about how this death will affect Cersei, what he can do to comfort Cersei. There's no thought given over the dead child, despite his early attempts to rouse himself. The focus is made clear, as well as letting us know how Jamie is already building up their reunion in his mind. In fairness, he was probably doing a whole bunch of this back in his cell at River Run, and now he's mere hours from her. Of course, he deludes himself into thinking it'll be perfect. Remember, the Cersei he's writing to is everything he's ever wanted. This will be the first time he's even seen her since her husband died. She's single, she's in need of him supposedly, and they can finally be together. It's quite the build-up. Further evidence for this Joffrey thing is given as the ride continues. Two quotes here. First, men were supposed to go mad with grief when their children died, he knew. They were supposed to tear their hair out by the roots, to curse the gods and swear red vengeance. So why was it that he felt so little? Second, he pictured Joff lying still and cold with her face black from poison and still felt nothing. Perhaps he was the monster they claimed. If the father above came down to offer him back his son or his hand, Jamie knew which he would choose. So we're really being hit over the head for this point early on. Indifferent is too kind a word for it. He even thinks back to Joffrey's birth, and what he thought back then is no different to now. Joffrey was just an aspect of Cersei to consider, one that took up too much of Cersei's time. Although I do like that we get another reference to Catelyn's end with the mad for grief and tearing out hairline. When Jamie rides back to talk to Brienne, we find that his proximity and promise of Cersei has also reverted him back to some of his ruder thoughts and inclinations towards Brienne. Cersei associated with a person's worst traits? I'm as shocked as you are. And unfortunately, we have to put ourselves back into feeling the effects of the Red Wedding as we find out how it has affected Brienne. It's tough to see this loss through Brienne's eyes. Not only was she genuinely fond of Catelyn, who was someone she could really put her faith into and allow her to serve an actual good person, all while propping Brienne up and empowering her, it also means she doesn't get a chance to fulfil her oath. Again, she was unable to defend Renly, a man she had swore to protect. She'd been able to avenge him as she swore after his murder. Now she is unable to serve Lady Catelyn or return Sansa, for both have gone in their own separate ways. The problem of Brienne finding someone worthy to serve is a huge part of her arc here and going forward. We already know, and will continue to find out in Feast, 
that Brienne herself is as inherently good as they come. She's a paradigm of virtue, and everything a knight should be, but she can't find the right boss. Though she never really saw it, Renly was bad news, and unfortunately, didn't care about her half so much as she believed. In Feast, she will technically serve the Lannisters, even if that does become a bit murky, because she's doing it for Jamie, who's at least trying to be better. But Catelyn was different. She was someone Brienne connected to, and could take real honour in serving. And now she's gone, leaving Brienne alone in the good fight again. Indeed, the main reason she takes on Jamie's quest is because it's the only conceivable way to serve Catelyn's memory. And therein lies the irony and hurt we know is coming, because Brienne will obviously end her feast arc by finding out Catelyn has now become something not so much on the good side of good and evil. Discovering more on that relationship is one of my top wants for Winds of Winter. Or, hopefully, I am right on the money with my request that Brienne eventually pulls a barristan and finds Daenerys as someone she can truly serve with honour. But that's another story. She looked so miserable that Jamie almost found himself wanting to comfort her. I include this line just to back up that idea of Jamie being a worse person the closer he gets to Cersei. It's evidence that not so long ago he was still finding himself drawn to kindness with regards to Brienne, whereas now he's wishing he left her in the bear pit. All of it comes back to much larger thoughts I've always had about Cersei being abusive towards Jamie in terms of their relationship, the manipulative hold she's had over him for so many years. This 18 month or so gap they've had apart from each other was absolutely critical for Jamie's development and rediscovery of self, as much as his hand loss also had to do with it. If Cersei had welcomed him back with open arms, he definitely would have been very tempted just to revert back to his own old ways. Luckily, Jamie has his own role and strength in finally standing up to Cersei, and luckily he has changed just enough to really see her clearly for the first time. But I'm getting ahead of myself, that's going to come later. It's fitting that Jamie, who has much changed from the last time we saw him in King's Landing, cue that Disney villain music, let's just remember him standing in the rain and swiping his hair out of his eyes as he stares down at Ned and Jory and the others. It's fitting that he arrives in King's Landing at a precise moment of change in Joffrey's demise. Let's also recall the change in Jamie's character, which still has plenty to go. It's not only in-universe, but meta as well. That smiling, blonde guy in the rain was not the fully formed Jamie we ended up with. I think it's clear he was going to be on a much straighter, antagonistic line before George adjusted things and dreamt up this semi-redemption arc or whatever you want to call it. I'd be shocked if George ever planned for that Jamie to ever become a POV. But he's not just a new Jamie to us, but to the people of King's Landing, as he and the Northmen ride through without recognition, something very alien to Jamie in these streets. Out in the wilderness of the Riverlands, that's one thing. Back here in civilization, is quite another. We spoke about the effect of that anonymity of, and not having everyone obey your commands or fear your surname back in his Riverlands chapters. Now it returns like a drug he's been off for a little while. The good thing about this passage is it really shows off how little the small folk care about Joffrey's death. The narrative we twisted later on in Tyrion's trial about the populace being up in arms about their sweet murdered king. And undoubtedly there are a few who feel that way, but in general, no one cares. Joffrey has left no legacy. That's satisfying to see, while also paying into that whole idea of most small folk not caring who their ruler is. They just want to get on with their lives. Having said all that, it still doesn't stop them from vilifying Tyrion, because that's just what people love to do. The night of flowers shone so fine and pure in his white scales and silk that Jamie felt a tattered and tawdry thing by contrast. This period of change and increased self-reflection makes all of this a perfect time for Jamie to meet Sir Loras, who, among other things, is included as a member of the King's Guard to perfectly reflect Jamie's younger self, therefore making him examine himself as an older knight, as someone who no longer has the basis for such cockiness without his hand, and drives him to make his contributions to the Order via different means. I think Loras being in the King's Guard is a really good thing for Jamie. It pushes him to develop those leadership and critical thinking skills that he lacked before. We've made a lot of older athlete analogies during this reread project, and another one clearly arises here. Jamie is the former superstar whose years are beginning to show, his injuries are taking their toll, and he just isn't the guy he once was. Here comes the young stud who is everything he once was. He's young, he's skilled, he's athletic. So if the team has a new one of those, 
Where can a Jamie find value? What can he contribute? Hence, Jamie begins learning the old man game, being smarter, more wily. He'll need some skills too, as we see Jamie pursue once he returns to the Riverlands in Feast, but it's another great change in his character. Speaking of, while he thought about it a lot more than he did Joffrey, the fact that Jamie's Lord Commander hasn't really been brought up all that much in his arc so far, but will become a premier focus as we go, and we get our first example in this interaction with Merin, Loras and Balon Swan. He goes straight into commander mode, ordering them about and condemning them for failing to protect Joffrey, and technically Robert. Clearly the fact that his role of choosing new brothers has been usurped by Cersei bothers him, and I really look forward to Jamie latching onto this new role instead of his Lannisterishnessness. Hmm. There's a chance for him to do something right. He failed as a Kingsguard once before with Ares, if you want to look at it that way. Now he finally has a chance to do something right by being good Lord Commander, and he's really going to buy into that idea as we continue with his King's Landing storyline. Though I will mention, Jamie actually fails as a Kingsguard twice. The Ares thing will let go, but he also abandoned Robert to just ride off and participate in a family war, and it will forever, ever, ever wind me up that Jamie never, ever, ever gets called out on that, as far as I remember anyway. Jamie gets his first real chance to lay down some authority when Laura sees Brienne, and Renly's death gets brought up all over again. Loras, clearly incensed and after something that will make him feel like he's done right by Renly, asks for a duel and pushes Jamie out of the way when he steps between them. Because who is this bearded, raggy guy anyway? It's just a knight that Loras has never met and doesn't have to listen to anyway because he is the best sword in the kingdom and doesn't have to worry about consequences because of it. Doesn't that sound familiar? Thus, Jamie gets a chance to decide how his tenure in King's Landing is going to go with this. Jamie grabbed the boy with his good hand and yanked him around. I am the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, you arrogant pup. Your commander, so long as you wear that white cloak. Now sheathe your bloody sword, or I'll take it from you and shove it up someplace even Renly never found. The boy hesitated half a heartbeat, long enough for Sir Balon Swan to say, Do as the Lord Commander says, Loras. I think we can all agree Sir Balon Swan is a pretty top bloke as they come, and he proves it again here by being the first to back Jamie's command and essentially solidify him in that role. The whole thing works, a bloodbath is avoided between Goldcloaks and Northmen, Jamie is legit, and it just so happens he's helped protect Brienne once again, even if he would never admit that such was a factor. Of course, Brienne is hurt when Jamie accepts Loras's insistence on arrest and discovers that whether it's swing a sword or being a leader, people will still misunderstand when you try to do what's best for them. How many characters could we apply that theme to? We have a briefer, much more direct challenge to who Jamie is when he comes across Sir Osmond Kettleblack at the Sept door, setting up the relationship and resentment Jamie will have for Osmond as we continue and definitely after he has a chat with Tyrion at the end of this book. Again, it symbolises the change. When Jamie left, no one had even heard of a kettle black. Now there's multiple kettles in multiple positions, and he's been away for so long and has changed so much they barely even remember his existence. For the first time, Tyrion is the more famous Lannister brother. Osmond is also a lot more direct in calling Jamie Cripple, but it all ends with another chance at laying down authority and leads us up to what is probably the biggest reunion in the series so far. The Jamie Cersei scene inside the Sept is obviously a whole mess of complicated issues between the both of them, even if they had stuck to a simple conversation. It's a pretty major moment. They were our original villains along with Joffrey, and now all three are united for a single time. We've come to know both Cersei and Jaime way, way more than we did at first, and now Joffrey lies dead between them. It's also fitting to see them making love again, given that is how we were first introduced, and there really are so many factors packed into a relatively short scene. There's passion, a need for comfort, anger, vengeance, and I think most importantly, the realisation that priorities have changed for the both of them. But we'd best start at the beginning. She rose, her eyes brimming with tears. Is it truly you? She did not come to him, however. She has never come to me, he thought. She has always waited, letting me come to her. She gives, but I must ask. Like I mentioned, Cersei has always been the one in charge of this relationship. We know this from Jamie's memories in earlier chapters, but it comes through here because as much as love and passion might be part of their relationship, 
There's also an element of the power games they play with everybody else as well. Cersei wants to set a tone. She wants to make sure she still has sexual power over Jamie, as she always had. He's always been the obsessed fool, and let's face it, she needs an ego booster right now as well. Why couldn't you have come sooner, to keep him safe? My boy. Our boy. I came as fast as I could. This is what I mean about power play. They are both as bad as each other. We know Jamie doesn't give a fig about Joffrey, yet now he suddenly wants it to be our boy. Why? Because then he has a grip on Cersei, and he gets a mention. This is sibling psychology at its best. They're still just twin children back at the rock, unable to let the other have complete ownership of a toy. More than that, they get into some passive-aggressive stuff about why Jamie's been away for so long, with Jamie feeling the need to validate himself and point out that there's a war out there. That gets left by the wayside for now, because all Cersei wants to talk about is her other brother. Just before we get to Tyrion, they also mention that they dressed Joffrey in armour eerily similar to Jamie's own, I do like to think that's a little metaphor to the former Jamie dying as he returns to King's Landing. But anyway, let's get to Tyrion. Kinslaying was worse than Kingslaying in the eyes of gods and men. He knew the boy was mine. I loved Tyrion. I was good to him. It's interesting for Jamie specifically to be thinking that, given his much-used title. You almost get the sense that Jamie wouldn't be upset that Tyrion killed a king, or even killed Joffrey specifically. It's that Tyrion killed someone he knew to be Jamie's son, and that's an affront to Jamie's ego. Again, the toy analogy comes back to play. If there was absolutely no way Tyrion could have known about Jamie being Joff's father, would Jamie care at all? No, I think not. Regardless, Jamie's love for his brother shines through because he's not so quick to condemn him, and definitely the idea of just going and murdering an unarmed Tyrion in a cell is more than Jamie's honour can swallow. Hence, Jamie's own King's Landing investigation begins, much like Eddard and Tyrion before him, and we get news of there being a trial, but then Cersei begins to kiss him. Should we be surprised that Cersei kicks off the physical stuff just after she needs Jamie for something? No, no we should not. Passion overtakes thought for the both of them, and each gets swept away in the moment. Of course, it's unsaid that this is a very different moment for both of them. Jamie has not been of anyone but Cersei. Cersei cannot say the same, regardless of whether she's been picturing Jamie the whole time or not. Still, that's not to deny that this is both what they've been longing for, what they've been aching for for so long. This, throughout almost their entire lives, has been their baseline. It's what makes them feel right and safe and whole. Don't forget, this is the longest they've ever been apart, I believe. So to have this sudden rush of your love returning to you, well, it's no surprise it goes down like this, even if we ignore the whole blasphemy, your dead child is next to you thing. I guess it's just easier to make these leaps once you've already made your peace with incest. In the cold light of post-coitus, blood returns to their brains and the scene is not so pretty when Cersei realises what they've done and Jamie starts making suggestions about going public, which we already know he's dreaming about just from the beginning of this chapter. Here's a quote. She drew back. That's not funny. Do you hear me chuckling? Did you leave your wits at River Run? Her voice had an edge to it. Thomas' throne derives from Robert, you know that. He'll have Custody Rock, isn't that enough? Let father sit the throne. All I want is you. Here's where those differing priorities come in. For Cersei, the entire goal is power. Everything is about power. All she's done with Robert and the coup, everything with putting Joffrey on the throne, battling with Tyrion, fending off Stannis, almost every action she's done has been about gaining or maintaining power. For Jaime, it's just been about Cersei. He doesn't care at all about power, though I'm not sure how he thinks Tywin is going to take the throne if Tommen's parentage is discovered, but I digress. They just want different things. Cersei feels she alone has orchestrated everything in the city to keep Joffrey, and now Tommen, in a position of power and more importantly, security. To risk that or give it up now is tantamount to madness. For Jamie, he says outright he's just crossed a war-torn country and lost what makes him him purely for Cersei. She accuses him of change, and not the good kind we talk about. But is she correct? Not in this sense, no. Jamie always just wanted Cersei. It's just that he's no longer willing to put up with all the other bullshit. What has all this been for if not the ability to be together? And therein lies the difference that will drive them apart. Much as she might love Jamie, for Cersei, it has always been about the Iron Throne. One more quick quote before we leave the set. 
I have Sansa Stark's maid and the tower cell. I need to question them. You should go to father. A blink and you'll miss it line, but we can assume this is where the deal with Shay will be made. Now, does Shay offer everything up off the top of her head to find favour and some means of income, or does Cersei sense Shay might be willing to play a role and get to read off a script? Who's to say? We don't know. Which leads us to the closing scene of the chapter and another grand reunion. Except it actually isn't for us readers, because we've never seen Jamie and Tywin together. We've spoken at multiple points through Storm how Tywin has been preparing for and anticipating Jamie's return. He's always been a big part of Tywin's plans, the biggest in terms of House Lannister, I guess, and that's become even more critical with Tyrion's downfall. So the plan can now be enacted. Tywin can take major steps forward for his family. Except it doesn't quite go down like that. First big thing for father and son to tackle is Jamie's hand. Lord Tywin pushed himself out of his chair, breath hissing between his teeth. Who did this? If Lady Catelyn thinks... Hmm, whoa. Thinks? Thinks? You mean fought Tywin? Past tense. Please try and keep track of your victims in the future. On top of that indignation is the fact this might be the most genuine reaction we ever get from Tywin, which makes me a little smug, but the following conversation of how Jaime lost a hand to one of Tywin's own mad dogs seems to go right over the bald head of the Elder Lannister. It escapes him entirely that this is his fault. He unleashed this kind of horror on multitudes of people, and it just so happens to eventually come back and bite him in the ass. Even the bitter irony that he sends another of his monsters to deal with the first monster isn't brought up. There's even detail about Gregor keeping Vargo alive bit by bit, and we'll discover more gruesome details about that when Jaime returns to Harrenhal in Feast. Yet it still doesn't occur to Tywin, the kind of evil he has at his command. Instead, his focus is on revenge. They'll make for ports, I warrant, or try and lose themselves in the woods. His eyes went back to Jamie's stump, and his mouth grew taut with fury. We'll have their heads. Every one. So even those fleeing Tywin cause strife and pain, as we'll discover in Feast with such things as a salt pan's raid. Literally everything Tywin touches rots. As for vengeance, not only has Brienne dealt the big blow to Vargo, but she'll continue to go out and clean up this mess for the Lannisters and get Jamie's revenge at the Whispers and back in the Riverlands. If you've ever played Super Mario Sunshine, Brienne is essentially the flood machine to the Lannisters' goopy mess on the island of Delfino. Is it Delfino? Pretty sure it is. I need to replay Super Mario Sunshine. This conversation is so incredibly important in Jamie's arc as a whole. It's basically a summary of the argument he's been making with himself for most of his adult life. The argument that surrounded the biggest decision he ever made. Does he owe himself to the Order of the Kingsguard or to the Order of House Lannister? And when he comes down to it, he's finally able to make a definitive choice. It sets out massive ripples for the future of House Lannister, the future of the Kingsguard, the relationship between he and Cersei, what remains of the relationship between he and his father, and indeed, who he will go on to become as a person. We can look at several key moments when searching for when Jaime became a different man, but this one belongs right up there at the top of the list. No one ever asked me if I wanted to be Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, but it seems I am. I have a duty. You do, Lord Tyrone Rose as well. A duty to House Lannister. You are the heir to Cassidy Rock. That is where you should be. Tommen shall accompany you, as your warden squire. The Rock is where he'll learn to be a Lannister, and I want him away from his mother. I mean to find a new husband for Cersei. Jamie sounds very like Stannis at the beginning there, doesn't he? But this quote says a lot more about Tywin. Isn't it interesting how he seems to be removing all the Lannisters around him? Joffrey is already dead. Tyrion will either be dead or at the wall, depending on how much you believe Tywin later on. Tommen and Jaime will be at the Rock, and Cersei will be married off to the highest bidder, either physically or symbolically out of the picture. I get the real sense not just from this scene, but from the earlier council meetings about Joffrey, and really this whole book, that Tywin is just sick of his family. He knows how much they've all messed up and is tired of dealing with the results. Much easier to get them out of the way, store them up for when they are needed after his death, and hope each of them pop out some more kids while he is busy effectively ruling the kingdom. This certainly makes sense. Tywin had to put up with Ares on his first stint as hand, and then Joffrey on his second. Wouldn't it be much easier just to remove that entire obstacle, as well as squabbling grown-up kids, and rule as you like for once? 
Tommen isn't Joffrey for sure, but he's still less of a problem back at the Rock. Much like his daughter, at the end of the day, Tyrion's main goal is power, that and the Lannister line, which he believes he has set up with these two proposed marriages. And just before we get to them, we part of that quote as well, is he wants Tommen away from Cersei. Clearly, he blames Cersei very much so for how Joffrey turned out. I wonder if he selected a Tyrell and a Martell as matches for Jamie and Cersei. With a happy coincidence, it would make it much harder for the two twins to see each other if that actually happened. Either way, Jamie's had to sit and listen to these plans to remove him from the Kingsguard and return him to the Rock, and let's not forget his weirwood dream here. But losing Cersei to Oberyn Martell after he's just got back to her, that's too much. Here's a really good quote. Lord Tyrell swears the girl's still maiden. She can die a maiden as far as I'm concerned. I don't want her. I don't want your rock. You are my son. I am a knight of the Kingsguard, the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, and that's all I mean to be. Intense. There's a lot of factors at play here. Jamie's likely incredible fatigue, notwithstanding. The marriages, the being shipped off, his role as flagship Lannister, but the one Jamie comes down hard on is the Kingsguard. Like we said a moment ago, it was being a Kingsguard that defined the major moment of his life. Being the Lord Commander is his big chance to get it right, to have some authority over his own life. He isn't going to do it to get in Cersei's pants for once. He isn't going to do it to make Daddy happy. He's going to do it for him, finally. And I really find myself standing up and applauding Jamie for making this choice and not backing down. He's finally taking some control. The fact that it majorly pisses Tywin off and corrupts all his future plans is just an added bonus, all of which leads to one of my personal favourite closing lines. You say you are Lord Commander of the Kingsguard and only that. Very well, sir. Go do your duty. And from benefit of reread, we know that's exactly what Jamie does. And there closes Jamie 7. There closes part 13 of A Storm of Swords and today's episode. Whew. A long one. A long one for really one thing. One big thing. The Purple Wedding. Plus a bit of Jamie at the end. Very different episode. Very different feel. Not being out and around in all, in all the different plots. But a big, big marker of not just Storm of Swords but the series knocked out of the way. And you can really tell after this. When I think of Storm of Swords in my mind, this is near the end, so you know we're really driving. We've got some big stuff coming up, such as next week, in which we'll return to having a bit of a mix. We'll have King's Landing still, but we'll have Dragonstone, we'll have the Riverlands and the North. We begin with Davos 6, then John 8, Aya 12, Tyrion 9, and Jaime 8. So a little bit of a repeat from this time at the end there. Don't forget, there will be a Sporkle Spectacular coming soonish this weekend, next week soon either way so we can get our guests on and like i said that, that patreon only episode the voting results i'll let you all know which chapter i'm going to be reading from the great castles of westeros and an official guide i have even toyed with the idea of doing a live stream of it but i don't know if i'm smart enough to figure out how how to do that so uh, maybe not either way it'll come and uh, I'll, I'll be letting you know thank you for joining us today everybody hope you're well we'll see you next time